great. You've been loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. You are listening to the Already Gone Podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the mysterious, the murdered, and the lost. Recent episodes have focused on unsolved murders, and in this instance, we have no evidence of a violent death. I think that by the time we're through, you'll agree that someone killed her, that someone got away with murder almost 40 years ago. Deanie Marie Pyle Peters was born in Southern California in September of 1966. She lived in California until 1980 when she relocated with her mother and stepfather to Western Michigan. Deanie moved to a small town bordering Grand Rapids. If you followed the disappearance of Jessica Hiringa, this is the same part of the state. If you're like me, you wondered if the man charged in Jessica's disappearance, as well as another kidnapping and a murder, could be involved. Jeffrey Willis was 11 years old when this happened and lived about an hour away, so not likely. Deanie was adjusting to her new home. She had friends at Forest Hills Middle School, loved going to the mall, and sometimes snuck out of her bedroom window at night to have a cigarette. Let's not be too hard on Deanie for smoking. It was early 1981. Many, many people smoked. You could still smoke in restaurants and bars. In many places, the non-smoking section didn't exist. It would be another 30 years before Michigan passed a ban on smoking in public spaces. On the day before Deanie disappeared, she'd been involved in an altercation with two older girls. The fight became physical, possibly some shoving or punching, but no one was injured. They were arguing over a high school boy. The two girls threatened Deanie, telling her to stay away from the boy in question. Deanie may have written about this fight in her diary. She may have named the boy she was fighting over, but her diary was lost while in police custody, so we don't know how she felt or what she thought about the incident. On the evening of February 5th, 1981, Deanie was back at Forest Hills Central Middle School. She was accompanying her mother and kid brother to a youth wrestling event. Shortly before the event ended, she told her mother she was going to the restroom. As she walked away, one of her friends called her over, and Deanie said, I'll be right back, and exited the gym. What her mother and her friend and her little brother couldn't know is that as of that moment, Deanie Marie Pyle Peters was gone. When she exited the gym, she slipped into oblivion. Aside from Deanie disappearing, a couple of unusual things happened that night at Forest Hills Central Middle School. One, the custodian, Arthur Diaz was doing his usual evening work in the building 
when he came upon a group of high school-age boys trying to gain access to the building. One of them was wearing a green and white Forest Hills Central High School jacket. Diaz didn't know these boys, nor did he recognize them. He did not let them in the building. Remember, it's after hours, the school is closed except for those attending the wrestling event in the gym. People who lived across from the school said that that evening a couple knocked on their door. They'd run out of gas. They needed help. One of the residents drove them to a local filling station to get a gas can to get the car going again. This bit of information was not in the newspaper. I discovered it on Reddit. No one saw Dini after she exited the gym. There was a quick, informal search of the school and grounds done that evening when she didn't return. Her mother made call after call to Dini's friends and neighbors trying to find her. No one knew where Dini was. No one had seen her. A larger search was executed in the wintry daylight the following day. This is another case where life continued on like nothing happened. The day after she disappeared, the school opened to students, the parking lot, drives, and building were all used. Any evidence that may have existed was trampled, contaminated, or lost to the everyday activities of a busy school building. By the end of the week, a full-scale search and investigation was launched. Again, too late to preserve anything from the school or its grounds, the last place Deanie was known to be. I think it's important to mention that Forest Hills Central Middle School and Forest Hills Central High School share a campus. If you look on Google Maps, the aerial view shows the two buildings connected by a road that runs alongside the athletic fields. The school campus has woods on one side and Paradise Lake on the other. When it comes to making someone in the area disappear, there's many opportunities. So where was Deanie going? People near the restroom said she never made it there. It's possible she stepped outside to have a cigarette. Some theorize she was headed to the house of a friend who lived near the school. Deanie didn't arrive at the friend's house, and why not tell her mother she was leaving, rather than lying and saying she was going to the restroom? Maybe Deanie ran away. She's 14, a new town, a new state. It's February in Michigan, which is bitter cold and so gray. She had to be missing California, missing her father. Wouldn't a teen, even an impulsive one, take something with her if she's leaving? At her house, in her room, was her purse. The money she'd received at Christmas, more than $100, was still there. Would Deanie run off on a weeknight with only the clothes on her back? She was last seen wearing a brown winter jacket, pink sweater, blue jeans, and a cream-colored scarf. She wasn't carrying her purse or a bag. Deanie vanished with only the clothes on her back. Deanie's boyfriend, a high schooler named Guy, was questioned and cleared. Deanie's father, older brother, stepfather, they were all checked out. They weren't suspects. Another theory I've read is that Deanie stepped into the parking lot for a cigarette. While in the lot, she was struck by a car and badly injured. Deanie was dressed in dark clothing. It's possible she was hit by someone. The person that hit her scooped her up and put her in their own vehicle driving away. Perhaps Deanie was mortally injured in the accident, or maybe she wasn't, but they panicked, took her away, and dumped her somewhere, leaving her to die in the elements. Remember, Michigan, February. It's dark and cold. A twist on this theory is that she was hit or abducted while walking to her friend's house near the school. 
Deanie Peters wasn't a big girl. She was about five foot three and 100 pounds. If someone grabbed her, it's not likely her cries for help would be heard. People aren't hanging out in the parking lot. They're inside watching a noisy sporting event. Nearby homes would be closed up against the weather. Snow on the ground means that sound is dampened. Police looking into her disappearance took a hard look at Arthur Diaz, the school custodian working at Forest Hills Central Middle School that night. Diaz had access to the school's incinerator. Could he have grabbed Dini, murdered her, then incinerated her remains? Eventually, he was taken into custody and brought before a grand jury. But it led nowhere. The incinerator might dispatch paper and food scraps from the school kitchen, but it wasn't big or powerful enough to get rid of a body. Diaz left his job as custodian in 1984. He had no criminal record until the 1990s, when he was arrested for driving while intoxicated. Remember the boys that Diaz saw trying to get into the school that night? Police didn't look for them or interview them about what they may have seen happen at the school. As far as I can tell, they were never identified, interviewed, or ruled out. Maybe they were at the school for the wrestling match. Maybe their appearance was a coincidence and unrelated to her case. We just don't know. Police also looked at a high school student named Bruce Bunch. Bunch was a couple years older than Deanie and was friendly with the girls Deanie fought with the day before she vanished. After she disappeared, Bruce told friends that he often had what he called, quote, a mental telepathy thing, and he had one about Deanie. He later said that somehow this morphed into him having killed Deanie or involvement in her disappearance or her death. He denied it. Another story had him bragging at a keg party about how Deanie had died. This story says she was buried near an old one-room schoolhouse north of Lowell. The Kent County sheriffs searched the area around the schoolhouse in 1981, acting on a tip. There was no sign of Deanie found there at the time. There's a photo of the abandoned schoolhouse on my website. It's as gray and isolated and eerie as you'd expect. Remember how Deanie was dating someone named Guy? Well, Guy worked with Bruce at a factory in Lowell. Coincidence? That the man many considered the main suspect in her disappearance worked with and went to high school with Deanie's boyfriend? Despite highly publicized pleas from her family and a generous cash reward for information, Deanie's case went cold. In 1989, a woman came forward saying that she was hanging out near the Flat River drinking with some friends from the Lowell area about 10 miles east of the community where Deanie lived and the location of the old one-room schoolhouse mentioned earlier. One of the men she was with told a story about being out with friends one night and hitting a girl with their car, that they loaded her body in the trunk and sped away, later burying her remains near the Flat River. Neither Bruce Munch nor Arthur Diaz was mentioned in this scenario. Police interviewed the man who told this story, which led them to search a former summer camp in the area for Deanie's remains. Nothing. No trace. No sign. No closer to finding her. I find it interesting that Lowell, a small town east of Grand Rapids, comes up time and again in Deanie's story. Law enforcement and the police noticed this as well. In 1991, Deanie's mother obtained a death certificate for her daughter. The death certificate shows a 1964 birthday. It's incorrect. Deanie Marie Pyle Peters was born in September of 1966. 
In fact, her birthday was just a few days ago. What is accurate on the death certificate is that her place of death and date of death are unknown. In 2008, the Kent County Sheriff's Department launched another investigation into Deanie's case. Five people were assigned to work her disappearance full-time. They went over everything again, re-interviewed people from 1981. They searched and dug and drained someone's pond looking for what might be left of the dark-haired teen. They re-examined rumors that she was buried near the schoolhouse in Lowell. They searched fields and conversed with everyone they could find who was at the school that night. They even tracked down a girl, now an adult woman, who was involved in the altercation with Deanie the day before she vanished. She denied any knowledge of Deanie's death and was cleared by police. One person they couldn't talk to was Bruce Bunch. The same Bruce Bunch who dreamed that Deanie was dead. The same Bruce Bunch that boasted at a high school party about Deanie's death. Bunch, who moved to Kentucky in the 1980s, died of natural causes in early 2008. His former wife believes that if Bruce had been drinking, he certainly was capable of being involved in something tragic and terrible. Bruce's daughter defends him, saying, Don't try and pin this on him because he's gone. There isn't enough evidence to link Bruce to the case, and there's not evidence to exonerate him either. Even school custodian Arthur Diaz was looked at again, and still no connection between him and Deanie, despite the efforts of a five-person team that worked full-time for more than a year on this case. There's no resolution. Deanie is lost. Her siblings, Deanie was one of four kids, they still miss her. Her mother and stepfather still hope that they can someday lay her to rest. We're about to take a very dark turn in this story. We're going to Florida. It's 1994. Edward Zakrzewski and his wife Sylvia are the parents of two young children, a seven-year-old son and a five-year-old daughter. Edward, who goes by his nickname Zach, is stationed at Eglin Air Force Base, where he's a technical sergeant. After ten years of marriage, things are not going well between the couple. The strain is pronounced, and Sylvia starts talking about divorce. Zach is frustrated by this. It's not acceptable. He warns Sylvia, it's not going to happen. Stop talking about divorce. One morning, Zach's seven-year-old son calls him to tell him that Mommy's talking about divorce again. Zach has had enough. On his lunch break, he goes to the hardware store and purchases a machete. He leaves work early so he can be home before his wife and children, and he hides the weapon in the house. Later that evening, he attacks Sylvia, beating her, strangling her, and later assaulting her with a machete. He also attacks and murders his children. Their deaths are brutal, violent. Afterward, Zack washes up, puts on fresh clothes, and drives his car to the airport in Orlando, Florida. He buys a ticket to Hawaii, where he will hide for several months, living at a religious compound, doing odd jobs in exchange for a place to live. One night, he's watching television with the reverend in charge of the compound. The popular show Unsolved Mysteries comes on. 
The story of a brutal 1994 slaying in the panhandle of Florida is featured. The show points out that the murders were overshadowed by a more famous, more notorious murder that happened on the West Coast. You see, the bodies of Sylvia, Edward, and Anna Zakarzewski were found the same day that Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman were murdered. A picture of Edward Zakarzewski came on the screen. Missing. Wanted for his role in the death of his family. The reverend turns to the man that he knows as Michael Green and says, That looks like you. Edward Zakarzewski left the compound early the next morning. He turned himself into police, and he is transferred back to Florida to face charges. In 1996, he was sentenced to death for murdering his wife and children. Despite exhausting his state and federal appeals, he remains on death row. People living in and near Grand Rapids, Michigan, followed this case closely because Zach Zakarzewski was a 1983 graduate of Forest Hills Central High School. Had Deanie Peters lived, she would have been class of 85. In 2008, Zach was questioned by a Kent County detective regarding Deanie Peters. The detective paid him a visit while on vacation in Florida. Despite the brutal murder of his young family, Zach is not a suspect in Deanie's disappearance. Mary Peters made a pull just days after Deanie vanished. We just want you to come home, Deanie. Please. 29 years later, she is still waiting. I don't think you ever get over it. You kind of move on. There's certain times of the year that it's worse than others, like now, because it's coming up on the anniversary of of her disappearance of 29 years. I don't think you ever get over it because there's no closure here. It was Mary Peters who watched her daughter walk across the gymnasium for the last time on February 5th, 1981. Law enforcement in Kent County, Michigan have a good track record with closing cold cases. In 2007, a group of men and one woman were prosecuted for the 1979 sexual assault and murder of Janet Chandler, a student at Hope College. In 2014, they made an arrest in the 1990 murder of another college student, Joel Battaglia. They believe that if someone with information will talk, Deanie's case can be closed, or more importantly, bring peace to her parents, siblings, and loved ones. There is a $25,000 reward for credible information about what happened to Deanie and where her remains are located. It's important to note that the statute of limitations has run out for those who may have knowledge of her death. The only person who would face charges is the one who actually killed Deanie. If you are not comfortable sharing information publicly, you can call Silent Observer at 616 774-2345 with an anonymous tip. Or call the Kent County Sheriff's Department. They'd love to hear from someone who knows something about the case. If you'd like to do your own research into Deanie's story, I highly recommend the work done by Brent Ashcroft of WZZM, a Grand Rapids area TV station. Brent has worked tirelessly on Deanie's case. 
They've even set up a Facebook page for Deanie. It's called Deanie Peters, WZZM 13 Investigates. Let's take a moment to think about Deanie's mother. She was 34 when her daughter vanished. Now she's in her 70s. She's preserved some of Deanie's things as a memorial to her missing girl. Deanie's vanity set still sits on her antique dresser. And if you look carefully, you can see strands of her long dark hair trapped in the bristles of her brush. The little tray with her perfumes is still there, waiting for Deanie to choose one to apply. They're in a bedroom in her mother's Arizona home, waiting for someone who is forever a teenage girl and not the woman that she should be. The Deanie Peters case was suggested by Lori. Thank you, Lori. Reviewer Len138 suggested that I number the episodes to make it easier for listeners to track. That's a great idea, and I added numbers to all the episodes this week. I hope you enjoyed last week's interview with Dina of Twisted Philly. This week, I'm talking to someone else who has a true crime podcast. Watch out for that interview in a day or two. As always, thank you to Luke Superior for our music. If you like his work, please find him on SoundCloud. Finally, if you haven't had a chance to review the show, please do so. Reviews help others learn about the podcast and these unsolved cases that need one person to step up with information to close them. Thanks to Dizzle07, J.E. Robinson, Joe Vandal90, my nickname is Mistaken, Maureen Karen, F-R-A-S-F-S, Bella, Just a Story Podcast, McGuire, and Word Girl Sammy for their reviews. Be sure to click the subscribe button, tell your friends, and thank you so much for listening. And please, be safe.
You've been loading up on things from Walmart. Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% 5 back. back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A.